Hello and welcome to the Questions of Life podcast. I'm Kath. I'm joined by Donald. Hello. Today in our discussions, we are looking at questions about the book of Revelation, including beasts, numbers, and the end of the world. Enjoy our conversation. Now, Donald, the book of, the book of Revelation is really interesting because it starts off in a really exciting uh, and uh, way that kind of grabs you. So the first three verses of the first chapter of Revelation says this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So this is a great introduction. We begin to understand that John's written the book, that it's a, a revelation from Jesus through an angel. You're thinking, this is exciting stuff. I'd love for God to talk to me through an angel. That might freak me out, actually, if that happened. And he said, you know, the person that, that reads this book, blessed something that we're encouraged to do, that something will build us up and will challenge us and will bless us. And you think, great, let's crack on. Let's get into the rest of the book. And as you get into the rest of the book, things become a little bit interesting as you're trying to work out what on earth is John talking about? What on earth has he seen? Because he talks about lots of different things that can leave you a bit baffled. Just picked out a, a few of the things that are mentioned in Revelation. So he mentions uh, 666. We have the mark of the beast, 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. We've got the great harlot. We've got the dragon. We've got the book of life. Six times it talks about a thousand time period. It talks about tribulation, the antichrist, seven golden lampstands, four living creatures and the elders. There's a fiery lake and the second death. Now I could have written many, many more bullet points about this book. It is intriguing. It is fascinating. There is so much in there. So to start off with, Donald, just tell us a little bit about why this book was written. We always talk about understanding the context of the book, where it lies, what type of uh, writing it is. Just talk to us. Give us a little introduction to Revelation and why it appears in the Bible. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it is a brilliant book and it's a really important book, but it has to be understood correctly. And it picks up a style of, of Jewish writing that we find in the Old Testament, a book of Ezekiel and half of the book of Daniel. It's called mm -hmm. what's called apocalyptic writing. Now, actually, the Jewish tradition was that you couldn't study those books until you were 30, in your 30s, and you had to be taught and learn. The reason is, is that what this language does, is this, this form of literature, is it's using a load of images and metaphors from the Bible. And if you don't understand the image and the metaphor, then you can make the Bible say anything you like. Yeah. So if I can just remind us of some of the key principles of Bible interpretation that we've talked about before. The fundamental thing is that a passage needs to mean what the writer meant it to mean. So we've all had messages, text messages that we've said and people said, taken offence, mm -hmm. and we think, we say, well, that's not what we meant, and they say, but that's what you said. Yeah. And we say, yeah, but you've made our words say something we didn't mean. It's very easy to do that with the Bible, and the easiest book to do it with is the book of Revelation. So the first thing is to say, we have to dig down and say, what did the, the angel and John mean? To do that, we have to understand the context. So John, this is the last book of the New Testament, not only physically, but probably written. It's, it comes at the end. So the other books are available, the other letters are around. John is the last remaining disciple, the last remaining apostle. He's imprisoned on an island. Whether he's got the freedom of the island, it's uncertain. What he is seeing and what uh, is that the majority of his colleagues have been martyred. They have died. He is seeing the Christians being persecuted. He is seeing people who've come to Christ since Jesus um, being fed to the lions, gladiators, and dying. And he is alongside a, 
the church as a whole saying, what is going on? Mm. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it's clear in the New Testament that the expectation is that they would all see Jesus return from heaven in their lifetime. And John, if you like, is virtually the last person who saw that. So the question that, that he is asking and that those who are listening to John's writings are asking is, what on earth is going on, God? Where are you? Instead of us seeing the triumphant return of Jesus, we are seeing persecution and evil. What are you doing, God? Mm -hmm. So Revelation is answering that question, what are you doing? And it's really important to ask the, a text the right question, the question that's being asked. So, for example, we've talked before about how the Bible uses metaphors. And we've talked about the Bible saying that God is a rock or my rock. If we ask a passage of Scripture that talks about God being a rock, what is God made of? Mm -hmm. We'll come out with a crazy answer that it isn't what the passage means. If we ask the passage, what is God like? then we get the right answer. He's like a rock, he's dependable, mm -hmm. he's a foundation. We can rely and build our lives upon him. The book of Revelation is asking, is it going to be okay? Is this a surprise to God? Mm -hmm. And it answers that question. It is not answering the question, when is Jesus coming? Because it's right about that moment, what is going on? So that's important. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But the second thing that's really important to understand is that John has to smuggle this letter out. And the letter is critical of the Roman Empire. There's no doubt about it. The, the, the letter describes in code the Roman Empire as evil. Mm -hmm. There's no two ways mm -hmm. around that. It describes these people who are persecuting the church as, as evil, but it's written in a code and he uses the way that the writers who were in, in, in exile in Babylon, that's Daniel and Ezekiel, had to do the same thing. There they mm. were in a foreign country and they were trying to communicate God's truth. So what they did was they used language that if you knew the Old Testament, you would know what it meant. And if you didn't know the Old Testament, you would think this is a load of crazy <laughs> ideas. So John, or the angel speaking to John and the revelation of, of to John is using language that people steeped in scripture should get mm -hmm. and Romans won't. Yeah. So in order for us to understand revelation, we need to uh, understand the Old Testament and we need mm -hmm. to understand the image. We need to stand... What does it mean when it says God is a rock? It doesn't say it in Revelation, mm -hmm. but to, what does it mean when God is a shepherd? What does it mean when mm -hmm. God is light? To understand these metaphors. Now, Revelation's metaphors are a little bit, in some sense, a little bit uh, obscure, but some of them are very obvious. Mm -hmm. And the, the third really important thing, so we're trying to work out what it means. Mm -hmm. We're asking the right questions. We're understanding that it's metaphor. It's really important to understand that it's metaphor. And the... The next thing, final thing to say, it's really important to understand, is it has to make sense then. Mm -hmm. It has to make sense 500 years ago. It has to make sense to my grandparents, my great-granddads in the Battle of the Somme. Mm -hmm. It has to make sense to my father's generation fighting Nazi Germany it has to make sense to us today. Where people get in all kinds of trouble with Revelation is when they think it is somehow an explanation of today only. Mm -hmm. It's an explanation of life. Mm -hmm. It's an explanation of suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's an explanation of how God will overcome evil. Mm -hmm. It's not a timetable. Mm. It's not saying when, it's saying this 
that God is going to prevail. It's saying mm. who, if you like. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's, and we'll explain that as we go through, but that's kind of the, the picture. I think it's really interesting that you pick up on the fact that for John and for his cohort, they were expecting the return of Jesus in their lifetime. Mm. And it was something that, you know, Jesus said he was going to return. He said that a, a lot in his ministry. And for them, there was this assumption that, yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be soon. And he says in the, the verses that I read, um, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. This sense that in his mind, in his thinking, that the return of Jesus is imminent. Mm. Today, I don't think we live in the light of that thinking, which is why books like Revelation are really, really important for us to get a sense of what the Bible says about it. I mean, we'll talk about the fact that Jesus will return uh, and we don't know the hour, we don't know the time, even though some people try and interpret all of the passages in the Bible to come up with a date and a time. But that should then give us an urgency and, and a sense of, this could be my last day. How, how can I make the best of that for Jesus? And I think we've lost that. I think there's a middle ground, isn't there, where, where perhaps John and his cohort should have been, well, it may not be in my lifetime, but I'm still going to work towards it. Uh, and we need to be it may not be in our lifetime, but I need to expect it. It's, it's, it's a balancing act, isn't it? So I yeah. think it's really interesting for them having lived with Jesus and seen him and Jesus returned to heaven the way that he did with his promise that I'm coming back. Well, it's understandable that he's trying to make sense of it all. I think it's really helpful what mm. you've said yeah. as an introduction and as an overview to it all. And those points are so important for us to bear in mind as we look at these passages. Mm. So you've chosen three passages for us to look at that you're going to unpack that for you illustrate a lot of what Revelation is yeah. about. So do you want to talk us through your first one? Yeah, if folks have a Bible, it's really helpful to have it in. I'm just going to read it and explain it bit by bit. So the first, this first bit is he, 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 he turns and he sees a, a, a figure who we come to see is Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting that the way Jesus is described just as a, in, in, in Revelation. So sometimes he's a lion, sometimes he's a lamb, sometimes he's a huge cosmic figure. <laughs> yes. And the problem with taking things literally is that you don't know whether Jesus is a lion or a lamb mm. or big or normal sized and mm. it becomes all sorts of peculiar. So it's much better to say, let's step back and yeah. feel it. I often think that Revelation is like a Monet painting. If you get very close to Monet, you know, those kind of bits of colour and, and lilies or whatever it is, from a distance it looks beautiful. If you get mm -hmm. close up, it looks odd. Mm -hmm. If we get too close to Revelation and try and, try and analyse every aspect, we lose the feeling. Yeah. And the feeling is what matters. So let's, if we mm -hmm. pick it up at yep. verse 12, uh, I turned around, this is John speaking, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw, and when I turned, I saw seven. Now seven is important. So that, that there are several numbers in the Old Testament that, that, that are significant. Seven is the, the day that God rests. It's the length of days of the creation of the world. It is often considered to be God's number and the number of perfection. Everything is right in seven. So he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. The lamp is, is often the symbol of uh, revelation of, of maybe the church being a witness. Sometimes it's a symbol of God. So whether this is talking about God's perfect light or whether he's talking about the church doesn't I'm not so worried about the specifics it's just the general feel of it that uh, th th this figure is amongst and part of this and I among the lampstands was someone like a son of man now this is a, an interesting phrase he's quoting the way um, Ezekiel and Daniel sometimes talk of the Messiah, who Jesus often uses that phrase about himself. He calls himself the son of man. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of, of in, in Daniel, it's a really cosmic, huge figure. When 
this passage says, like a son of man, part of him is saying, this is a human, mm -hmm. this is a quote of Jesus, mm -hmm. and this is a quote of this huge Messiah figure. Um, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, that's generally how you would describe a king or an exceedingly important person, even possibly in other cultures, a god. A long robe to the feet, uh, because you would, uh, you may remember in, in the parable of the prodigal son, the guy, the, the, the guy has a long robe and he has to hitch it up to run to his son. The reason only important people had long robes is that if you were a pleb and you walked normally, your long robe would go in all the poo <laughs> and all the mess and all the rubbish of the... So you would only have a long robe if you only ever walked in rarefied places like palaces where mm -hmm. somebody had already swept it up for you. Mm -hmm. So this guy is important, mm -hmm. this, this figure of Jesus. Uh, in his, uh, his head and hair were white like wool and as white as snow. Now, white hair, we would understand, they would understand was a symbol of wisdom, of age. Older people were perceived to be wiser, more knowledgeable, um, it's sort of a Gandalf kind of imagery. Here's an older guy who knows uh, everything, if you like. There are some people that misinterpret that bit of the passage and they say that you age in heaven. So, uh, you know, Jesus has been in heaven for a while and, you know, the, the, the aging process has caught up with him. He's gone a bit grey and everything else. That is a legitimate thing that people yeah. interpret that of, that we will age in heaven. I mean, so, I'm going grey now, so I'm going to be grey in heaven anyway. So, so what I want to say is it is impossible to take every part of Revelation mm. literally. Absolutely. And I'm going to show you in a minute why it's impossible. Mm. It's therefore unwise to pick and choose which bits are literal. Yes. It is, I think, intended to be entirely metaphorical. Mm -hmm. Entirely. Mm -hmm. Because once, and all the debates about Revelation are all about, I take this bit literally yeah. and not that bit. Yeah. And it's you just end up making it say whatever you want it yes. to say. So let's be consistent yes. because that's what I think John meant. And we go back yes. to what did he mean? He didn't mean Jesus was an old guy. Yes. He meant this guy is wise. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so his head was white like wool, white snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Now eyes are normally to do with what all seeing yep. and blazing fire is often to do with judgment. Mm -hmm. So here is uh, a figure who can see everything and is the judge of all things. That's mm. probably what it means. Mm -hmm. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now that links into this revelation, uh, Daniel prophecy of the yep. son of man, but it's also a picture of strength. If you imagine somebody in their feet are uh, like bronze, they're, they're, they're in a, you're thinking this is a powerful figure. Uh, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Mm -hmm. Now, if we try and analyze what that sounds like, we're all, we're, <laughs> let's get into the mono. We're getting too close. Let's yeah. step back and say, here is someone who's powerful, but also water is the symbol of life, mm. of giving life, of refreshing, of turning the wilderness into a place mm. of uh, refreshment and beauty in life. And out of it, uh, sorry, his feet were like in the sun. In his right hand, this is verse 16, he held the seven stars. Now, is he holding the universe? Is he holding seven lampstands? Again, I want to step back and say, this is a figure who has got everything in control. He's holding, whether it's the universe or whether it's the church. Uh, and out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword. Now, this is, to me, the final picture. Now, we know that in the Bible, the, the word of God is described as a two-edged sword. So everybody reading this who knows the New Testament knows that Paul has described mm -hmm. Scripture as a two-edged sword. So we're reading this code and going, okay, this is a figure who speaks the word of God. Mm. Now, all those who take different bits literally, I've never heard anybody say that when we get to heaven, 
So there are two ways of understanding that. The one way is to say that this is a chronological set of visions of different parts of history. Mm -hmm. That causes quite a lot of problems, which has given rise to a lot of theories of the end of the world. They're generally given the title millennialism, which we can explain in a moment. So, yeah, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, and, and, and things like that. And, and you have your raptures and your tribulations and all of that stuff. Because basically, if you take it chronologically, it doesn't make sense because yeah. we're not. Jesus seems to come up and down two or three times, yeah. which is quite problematic. <laughs> that is a more common way of trying to understand Revelation in America because America in part is founded on a group of Christians, of pilgrim fathers who felt persecuted in the UK and went to America to have their own religious freedom. And this kind of literalism was part of their theology. Mm -hmm. European thinking has never really gone down that road as much. But the more we hear about American theology, the more it impacts us. So most of this stuff about how the end of the world should or shouldn't be comes from American thinking, which comes from the way America was founded. But I want to say, which is, is not Donald's view, it's, it's, it's the more... It's the normal view outside of America. Yep. Let's put it that way. The normal view outside of America is that Revelation is a series of descriptions of what life is like in any generation. So it's not time dated at it's all? It's not time dated. So it describes the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. It describes, if you like, the Middle Ages, the mm. Norman Conquest. It describes, if you like, in our own sort of modern history, it describes what was going on in the First World War. Mm -hmm. It describes what was going on in the Second World War. It describes what's going on now, not with different language, but the same description. So it is saying this is the pattern that repeats itself mm -hmm. of evil versus good, of God versus Satan. This is the, the pattern that recurs. So this passage that we're going to look at, which talks about beasts and 666, I don't think was written for 2021 alone. Mm -hmm. I've been a Christian for 40 years and I've heard so many different, this is it. Um, it was to do, in the 1970s when I became a Christian, it applied to this person. Yeah. And when in the 1980s it applied to these people. And then, then it applied to these people. And then, it, and, and, you know... The reality is I think it was intended to help us understand what is going on all the time. Mm -hmm. It does describe and fit Hitler. It does describe and, and fit other figures in history. It's never meant to be, in my view, one. Yeah. It's a series. So let me explain yeah. how it. that uh, uh, comes. So where did I say we would pick it up? Revelation chapter 13, starting at verse 11. Right. If you've got it in front of you, it's really helpful. It's really helpful to remember that, ver that chapter 13 follows on from 14 because I'm going to read it through and explain it. So 14 it, follows on from 13. Is that what I said? No. Okay, 13 follows on from 14. 14 no, follows yeah. on from 13. <laughs> we put the chapters in later. The original thing is... Just one constant. Just one thing. Yeah. So then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. This is 11. And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. And again, we've got to understand the metaphors. Lamb is always to do with Jesus, mm. the one who was sacrificed. Mm. So this is talking, a beast is not a nice thing. No. So we're talking about something that's not good, that looks a bit like Jesus, but it's different. There's two horns. A horn is, is a symbol of strength. Mm -hmm. We know that from the Psalms. Uh, there's a double kind of strength. Speaks like a dragon. It's not the rushing waters. It's not the sword. Mm. It's speaking evil. Mm. Looks a bit like Jesus, but is saying the wrong things. And has authority. He exercised authority uh, on behalf of the first beast. So there's been previous evil incantations, which we look at before. So there's a sense of there is 
recurring figures of evil that speak and have, they seem to be getting away with it. Um, and they made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Now, this is, it's, again, it's complicated, but it's this idea that, that evil appears to be being defeated and then it rises again. And there's this constant cycle through history of we think the world's going to be great, the Berlin Wall's come down, communism's finished, we're all going to be happy, and then something else happens. You know, it's a constant theme, and the Revelation is saying, it's okay, this is what we know is going to happen. Um, and it's, it's interesting as well, it uses the word worship. Yes. You explain that word, because so often we think about going to church or singing or whatever. That's not what it means. No, so worship is really about the idea of serving, of being devoted to, of conforming to, of making the most important thing in our life. So the word worship and serve are, are, are the same word. And yep. at different points, they're translated in different ways. So there's this idea of serving this thing that looks like Jesus, but isn't. Mm. And I think there's a lot to suggest that there are times when this is about Lead world leaders, mm -hmm. and there are times when this is actually about concepts. Mm -hmm. It might be about money. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it can be about ideologies. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and we'll look more, more what it says about being healed, uh, about worshiping. So, in verse 13, he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. That there is a sense in sometimes people say, oh, because this person can do miracles or because this person has is spectacular and powerful, they must be right. This is saying evil will be able to do things that look like it's God. Mm -hmm. And it's, I would take it as vague as that. It's just they look like it's God. The, a lot of what Revelation is saying is be aware that what you think is good may not be. Mm. I mean, that kind of picks up on Elijah and the prophets and the God bringing the fire down from yeah. from heaven. Yeah. And that the same kind of, you know, other people can do that, but not for good. Yes. Picks up on that, yeah. 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 Uh, verse, where are we? Verse 14. 14. Because of the signs he was given power to on behalf of the... He deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Mm. He ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That's the, the sense of evil at the beginning. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and caused all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He forced everyone, small, great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name or the number of the beast, or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Then I looked, and before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I've deliberately read that verse because that is the verse that explains the previous bits. So you've got two contrasts. You've got people who've got the mark of the beast, either on their forehead or their right hand, and they cannot join in economically unless they worship this evil thing, unless they serve it, unless they conform to it. They, if they don't worship or serve or conform, they will be excluded economically. They can't buy or sell. Now, the first readers go, yep, that's us. Mm. The moment we say we follow Jesus and mm. that he's our Lord and Saviour, the Roman Empire says you can't do this, you can't yep. do that, and we are made poor. Yep. This describes what is going on in persecuted countries around the world Absolutely. where Christians are saying, I refuse to worship anybody other than Jesus. Okay, well, then you can't have this job. You're excluded. Mm -hmm. But then he looks and he sees these people who have the name of the Father on their forehead. Now, again, we've got to be consistent about understanding. I would take that, I think most people take that as saying, there are people who God has said, you're mine. Mm -hmm. You belong to me and, mm -hmm. I, and you're safe. And when I get to heaven, I don't expect 
to have God written on my forehead, literally. Because that, to me, demeans the picture. The picture is I've been bought at a price that I, he saved me and I belong to him. So frankly, it's un, poor Bible exegesis to take the mark on our forehead of ownership as metaphorical and the mark on our hand or forehead of the beast as literal. So I know there's all kinds of people who are frightened that barcodes and vaccines and uh, I remember the, going back a few years, there was a view that Gorbachev had the mark of the beast and that nobody should have birthmarks. birthmarks. Absolutely. All kinds of craziness. And it deceives. Mm. And really this is saying everybody has a choice. Who are you going to worship? You're going to worship the prevailing philosophy and system of the day or are you going to worship Jesus? Mm -hmm. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to belong to? It's not about something on my hand. It's about my attitude to the world, if you like. Um, it very often is about my attitude to political and world leaders. Mm -hmm. Do I think a political leader is the one who I must serve, love and adore? Even if they look like they're Christian and they say Christian things, but actually Jesus is saying, do you belong to me or a system? I mean, that sounds very much like what possibly has happened at some points in America that there is this allegiance to the president that goes beyond an allegiance to God. Yeah. And that's what this is warning against because of the results of what can happen. If we look back at some months ago and a president addressing a crowd... And, and how that was taken yep. and responded yep. and the riots and everything that took place. Are you saying that this is kind of just one aspect of what this is talking about? I'm saying about? that history will show again and again that there are leaders who manipulate nations, sometimes in the name of God, sometimes not in the name of God. To Hitler, for example. Your, your Hitlers, your Stalins, yep. uh, your Saddam Husseins, whatever yep. it is. And that the, the, the Christian has to say, I serve God even if that means I'm in a minority, even if it means I'm less advantaged, even if I'm less part, even if I'm excluded economically. Uh, if I was American, I would be very worried about this passage and what I saw going on in America, but I don't think this passage is just about... No. But it, it, it's, it's constantly saying, always be aware, always mm. watch yourself that you are not deceived mm. and that whenever you think, I, 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 I serve this ideology, I serve this system, there's a problem. Because our master, the one that we serve, is Jesus. Yes. That's where our true allegiance is. The God of gentleness, yes. the God of compassion, the yes. God of mercy, not the God of force or compliance or bullying or anything else. How does that happen? How, how does a, a nation with a, a Bible belt and a rich biblical history fall into that trap? Well, I think what part of what Revelation is saying is that Satan is allowed freedom on earth. Mm -hmm. Again, one of, the, I think, and I'm going to say all kinds of controversial <laughs> things, I can feel my email uh, <laughs> box filling already. One of, I think, the problems theologically is when people believe that God is completely in control mm -hmm. and everything that happens is God's will. Mm -hmm. It's clear to me from Revelation and from... Uh, 
the rest of the New Testament, Paul talks about spiritual warfare, but Satan is being allowed freedom at this time. To dis- yeah. and, and part of that freedom is he can deceive. Yeah. And that, that we have to be wise. And Revelation again in a sense says, be cautious, be wise. This calls for discernment. Look for it. And part of Revelation is saying, Jesus will return. He will conquer Satan. He will destroy evil. He will triumph. If you like, what I think Revelation is saying is the world is slightly out of control, but I will return and and restore control. It is not saying everything that happens now is good. It is saying everything that happens now will be overcome. And that's really important for Revelation. It's saying to the guys who've just seen their pastors reeled off to prison, this is not what God wants. This is what is going to happen and he will return and destroy it and overcome it. He will come with his reward, which we'll look at in the last passage. He will come and make it right. But right now, this is what's going on. And it's not that God isn't powerful enough to stop it into intervene if he wanted to. He is all-powerful. He could stop everything and anything. That's why that first vision is important. It is Jesus who has the keys to release, but he isn't making it happen. Yes, yes. Absolutely. So, so we take the 144,000. Yes. Uh, there are groups, Jehovah Witnesses, who believe there are only 144,000 people in heaven and that because the church of Jehovah Witnesses has got more than 144,000 people in it, they would believe that the rest of good uh, Jehovah Witnesses would be on earth as well. The problem is that you're taking one number symbolically or one number literally. Let's take it all symbolically. 144,000 is actually a very easy number to explain, as is 666. So 144,000, I hope I'm mathematicians know, <laughs> it's 12 times 12 times 1,000. Now, each of those numbers are important. 12 is, the, is a really important number in the Bible. There are 12 disciples and there are 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 is always the number of God's people. And 12 times 12 is saying the people of the Old Testament and the people of the New Testament. In the Bible, I mean, John hasn't got time to count that there are a thousand Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So he's seeing a picture and describing as 144,000 because he wants us to get the, the feeling of it. And a thousand is always in the Bible, like we would say millions. If I said to you, you know, there are millions of people in heaven, yeah. you wouldn't think I mean that there can't be billions. You yeah. would think I'm just saying there's loads it's just beyond number. People. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Bible uses thousand like that because mm. they didn't have a concept of millions, really. <laughs> so they, when they say thousand, they mean loads. Loads of people. So it, heaven is filled with people of the Old Testament, people of the New, the people of God, and there's loads of them. 666, there's all kinds of things that people try and work out who's got six letters in their name and all of that rubbish. It's basically saying this is, he says, it is man's number. Mm. Mankind's made on the sixth day. Mm. So again in the Bible, six is the number of humanity. So this evil that calls for wisdom is humanity. It's, it's worldly. It's, of, it's, not, it's, it's, God, it's man's stuff, not God's stuff. It's direct opposing to seven. Six, six, six. It's man, it's man, it's man. It's like Tony Blair saying, education, education, education. <laughs> I think that it's, was John Major. It's, 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 sorry? I think it was John Major, wasn't it? I think it was Tony Blair, okay, education, whatever it was. Whoever it was. It's just saying, it's man, it's man, it's man. It is Hitler. It is Saddam Hussein. It is Genghis Khan. It is whoever figure of any generation is seeking to cause people to be excluded, persecuted, damaged, turned against God. As Christians, should you steer away from the number 666? So I know like some people are putting petrol in their car, and yep. if there's any derivative of that, like 36.66, like can't do that, it's a sign of the beast. Where, where do you draw the line? I think it's superstition. Yes. We're a God who drives out all fear. Yes. Um, 
I remember we used to have a photo, we used to have a printer in the church office, and uh, I remember reading the uh, instructions, and it said, I don't know how it's so specific, it said that it would need a new ink cartridge after 666 pages of printing. Number <laughs> <laughs> of the beast. Tell you what, that photo, that printer was was beast-like. <laughs> a superstition. It's like the number seven. Uh, it's lucky number seven, isn't it? That's been taken over as well the other way. Mm. It's just trusting that, you know what, God is good. Yeah. God is bigger. So what, if my petrol is 36 pounds and 66 pence, I belong to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And it's like 13. 13 is considered unlucky because Judas was the 13th person, apparently, at the Last Supper. But it depends where you start. I reckon Jesus was probably the 13th. Because yeah. there was 12 disciples, then Jesus. By my calculations, that makes yeah. Jesus number 13. That makes 13 a lucky number. It's all <laughs> rubbish. You can twist it all in whatever you way you can. want. That's the problem, isn't it? We don't live in fear. And there's people that have looked at this passage and have said, no, this is somebody in the past. Uh, but you're saying this is intergenerational. So the key thing for me is, one, to not be discouraged by evil. Mm. Two, to look out for it. Three, to realise that Jesus is going to come and, and conquer it. Yep. The problem with saying, oh, this hasn't happened and this has, is that we then build up, and this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses begun, there's been numerous groups that have done this, that have said, okay, this is when Jesus is going to return, it's going to be next year or next he can come now. Yeah. He can come tonight. We yeah. have to be ready Absolutely. to meet him. And, and Jesus and Paul, Peter, in their writings are absolutely clear. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. So it's not about ticking off things. It's not about saying this hasn't happened, this has happened. That's all crazy it, there's stuff. There's been a lot of that around there, hasn't there? And so the, well, it has been for centuries. Say, this is the dragon, this is the beast, this is the second beast. Therefore, we are closer to the return of Jesus. That has gone on in the whole time that I've been a Christian. Yeah. I think a lot about my grandparents, as you know, and how they were traumatised by the, my granddad's by the First World War. If you think of yourself like my granddad, sitting in the Somme on the night of the first wave going over the top and you read Revelation, you think, crikey, this is describing it now. And that's to say to my granddad, you know, God's with you and this, yes. is, this is going, this is not unexpected to God and it will be put right and it's wrong, but it will be put right. Mm -hmm. But then to say, oh, well, therefore it doesn't apply anywhere else is crazy stuff. Okay, so... We've got, we've got a, a, a question in. Mm -hmm. This is Paul and Tracy Ravel. Evening to both of you, my lovelies. Um, if there are lots of people in heaven, which includes the Old Testament and the New, how is Hades holding the dead until Jesus returns? Absolutely brilliant question. So what Revelation makes clear, what... Uh, Jesus makes clear and what Paul and Peter all make clear in all their writings is that when we die, uh, the, the, the heaven that we understand by heaven is in the future. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways of understanding this. So basically what, what we're talking about is that the, the, the entry point to heaven we all enter at the same time. So you may die uh, 30 years after me, but we will arrive at the entry to heaven together. You've not been in heaven before me. Now, two ways of understanding that. One is to say that those 30 years, if you like, I sleep, that's the language of the New Testament. Yep. And the place I sleep is called Hades. I think that's a metaphor. So the other way of understanding it is my Doctor Who theology, <laughs> which is that when I die, I come out, I go into the TARDIS, mm. and I go to the future, mm. to the day of resurrection, mm. and you die at another point and go, it doesn't really matter which mm. way you, whether you understand it literally or metaphorically, what is clear is that everybody is, who is dead rises at the same time. That the dead are not pa 
parallel to us, mm -hmm. they are in the future. So the 144,000 in here and not actually, it's a vision. It's a vision and it's saying it, 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 the, the, heaven will be filled with the people who, who responded to God before Jesus and the people who responded after God, after Jesus and there is loads of them. Um, and they are owned, they belong because they have the, the, the name of, yeah. the, of God written on their head. So it's just telling us the story, it's painting us a picture, it's yeah. not literal, they are yeah. not literally there in heaven right now. We will all get there. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, we will appear before him in the air. Yeah. So this is, you know, part of the problem with American theology is because they take these different visions, so you get the idea. So if you take Thessalonians and Mark 13 and, and where Jesus talks about, what you get quite clearly is you get a period of time which is called the millennium. It's called a thousand years, but let, let's just say it's the moment from Jesus ascends to the moment he returns. I don't think it's literally a thousand years. It's already been 2,000 odd yes. years. Yeah. Uh, it's a period of time that we call the millennium. It's the last days. Yeah. It's the days from the moment he ascends to the moment he returns. When he returns, it's clear in the, in the New Testament, it's clear in Revelation, when he returns, he will bring up from the grave, he will raise from Hades, he will unlock the dead, and everyone will be raised. Those who have not asked Jesus to take their sin on the cross will be judged and will come to, at the moment, second death. Mm. They die again. Mm. They are destroyed, and that's it. They go into fire and mm. they're burnt. That's it, second death. Those whose names metaphor in the book of life that Jesus has, has died for and are known to God, who have this mark on the forehead. I think there is a book. Okay. I want to go there and see my name in it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, go on. They go to heaven. Yeah. And we, we go there together. Mm. Um, Pre-millennialism, post-millennialism have a concept of time after the resurrection of the dead before the entering of heaven. It's all very complicated. It's so all they... confusing. But you will see some American films. You will see some... And it talks about people disappearing. The and... rapture, those left behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what they are all trying to do is dis disagree on which bits they're taking literally. And, and it goes round in circles and it's... So you can have premillennialism, postmillennialism. Do people go get raptured before Jesus returns or after Jesus returns? Amillennialism is a view that uh, it's all one thing. So technically, most of the rest of the world are amillennialists. I like to think the big joke, uh, it's not my joke, somebody else's, that I'm a panmillennialist. In other words, it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> it, what, matters is, what matters is I am ready to meet Jesus yes. now. Absolutely. And that any way in which I think I can control that or plan it or work it out is wrong. We used to have this joke at college, which is very immature when I went to Bible college, that we would, um, the whole college would try and hide and just leave one person somewhere so they thought that everybody had been raptured. Yeah. Which was absolutely ridiculous because we didn't really believe in the rapture uh, anyway. Mm. Um, and it worked quite often. People, people were scared that they were going to be left behind. And one of the things this whole, uh, this bit of what we're talking about does is it causes fear. Yeah. And this is not what we're about. Jesus isn't about being scared of his return or being left behind. Christianity is about knowing I've been forgiven. I'm loved. I know where I'm going. I know who I belong to. And the symbolism of this is the people in heaven are those that belong those that have said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to turn from my old life. I want you to be my Lord and my Saviour. It's as mm. simple as that, as, as, as we say every week. And I think people try and complicate it and mm. read stuff into it. And you can get hooked into these films from America and these books. I know there's loads of them out there. Um, I just think it, it confuses people. I think what you just said is completely right. Am I ready to meet with Jesus? Is my life in order? Am I seeking to live for him every day? Is he the one in whom I'm putting my trust? Mm. Am I not trusting in Donald Trump or whoever else it might be? Is my trust in Jesus? Am I day by day walking in his strength, walking the path that he has for me, knowing that when life is tough, 
he's there, but he's coming back. That there's going to come a point, and we'll move on to that now, where he's going to kick butt, mm. where he's going to put everything right, and the beast and whoever else we want to, the beasts of history, they're going to get their comeuppance mm. because they're going to face justice. Mm. So do you want to move us on to your final passage? Yeah. Revelation chapter 21, and we are looking at verses 1 to 7. I mean, Revelation 21, 22, they're fantastic. Mm. And uh, uh, preceding that, well, maybe, we should, maybe we should just do the little bit beforehand. Um, we haven't, uh, yeah. Let's, let's go, let's do a little bit. Let's go 20, verse 7. Is that okay? Go for it. Uh, it says, when the thousand years are over. Now, I think that just simply means when the period from the mm. ascension of Christ to the return of Christ is over. This is the millennium. When the thousand, Satan will be released and go out and deceive the nations. So there's all kinds of bad things going on. Um, and uh, the fire came, uh, this is verse, the end of verse, the fire came down from heaven, devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. These so there's this sense of destruction. Justice. Justice. You're going to get your comeuppance. Yes. And then it says they will be tormented day and night. That's the only way, place where that language is used. It's specific to do with Satan. Yeah. I, I don't think it's intended to be about every single person because we, the metaphor is of death and mm. destruction that we come uh, so then we get, then I saw a great white throne, him was seated on earth, uh, earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Here are your books. There you go. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead would judge according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. So the book of life, you go to heaven, the book of, the other book has got everything you've done wrong. If I'm in the book of life, he doesn't open the other book. It's great. Metaphor. The dead gave up, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead they were in them. And each person was judged according to what he'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So it's all destroyed. It's all over. It's finished. It's destroyed. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So a, anyone not in Christ, it's all finished. It's destroyed. It's consumed. It's burnt up. It's not an eternal torment and... Only it would appear for Satan. Yes. But even then, is this a metaphor? It's uncertain. Yes. But the the only language of eternal torment is around Satan. Yes. Then I saw a new heaven, this is uh, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. (laughs) Now you've got some real metaphors going on because you can't. How does a city? How is a city dressed like a bride? Is every building it. got? Yeah. It, it's a metaphor, yeah. and it's two metaphors. Mm. Well, it's three really. One is a city is a symbol of safety. Mm. It's if you're in the city within the walls, you are safe mm. from the marauding attacks of other nations. So you go into mm. the city to be safe. Mm. The city of Jerusalem is where the temple, the presence of God, was. So. Seeing the city of Jerusalem is saying, we are seeing the presence of God where we are safe. Mm-hmm. The bride is a symbol of devotion mm-hmm. and purity and, mm-hmm. and love. We are seeing the people of God who loved, are loved and wanted by God in his place of security. It's a wonderful image. Can I just ask one question? Some yeah. people, I'm not saying I agree with them, say, and there was no longer any sea. Is that just in that moment? Is that just for Jerusalem? Or is the new heaven and the new earth not going to have any sea? A metaphor. Fantastic. I, I just don't... So if, sometimes we'll see a metaphor. I'm not certain mm. what that means. In which case, don't worry about it. Yeah. I suspect the sea is a metaphor often for chaos, yep. for the storms yep. of life, for d- destruction. Mm-hmm. And so it's saying there is no more chaos. That's probably what it means. Yeah. But there are people that will say there's no sea in heaven. Because they're picking which bit of they want to take literally and which bit they want to take metaphorically. I can't believe God wouldn't have 
see. It's no, part of its beautiful creation. Absolutely. It's what takes your breath away. That's absolutely. going to be there. Sorry, I'm just throwing in what no, people no, say. No, no, that's helpful. It's always the problem of being inconsistent. Yes, yes. And, and the houses that we live in in heaven will not be dressed as... They will not be bride-shaped with veils. No. <laughs> it's a metaphor. I mean, the next bit here where he's talking about a loud voice... Yeah. Who's that guy, Brian Blessed? I always think of that when I listen, when I read through Revelation, because God in every bit has got a really loud voice. <laughs> Is he just like shouting at us the whole time? It's power and authority. Yes, absolutely. A loud, voice, a loud voice. Now the dwelling of God is with men and they will live with them. And what we get in the next two chapters is the, the language mm -hmm. and the restoration of the first three chapters of the Bible, yeah. Garden of Eden, yeah. where God dwelt with his people. Mm. The dwelling of God is, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Now, this, is this language here is not metaphorical. It's not describing something. He's telling us something. Mm -hmm. So that which he's telling us mm -hmm. is, Im is important to take hold of. Because yeah. he's, he's, he's almost coming out and saying, right, I, need, I don't want you to misunderstand this bit. There's no yeah. metaphor here. This is clarity. Yeah. There is no more sadness. Mm -hmm. uh, he who is seated on the throne, the majestic, powerful king, says, I'm making everything new. Write these words down. They're trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega. He even explains that for us, the beginning <laughs> and the end, first and last letters of the alphabet. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He's not saying you'll never need a drink in heaven, he is saying you will never be dissatisfied. You will never want anything else. It's glorious. I've got a, uh, a message in from Ian Price. Okay. Evening, Ian. Amy and uh, little baby Jacob. Uh, so Ian says, what do you think about what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he says that we won't be gathered to meet Jesus until there is an apostasy and the man of sin is revealed. So I think the, the man of sin is, is similar descriptions of what John, it's the beast, it's the, it's the antichrist. Every generation has this going on. Yep. And so there are loads of those types. And I think the danger of saying it's one person is a really profound danger of saying it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Therefore, Jesus can't come tonight. Mm. And I think that's explicitly not what Jesus and Paul say. If you go, if, even in Thessalonians, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, uh, I think it's 5, he, uh, let me just, just make sure I'm getting this right. Uh, Yeah, so 1 Thessalonians 5, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord, that's the return of Christ, will come like a thief in the night. That's unexpected, unprepared, unplanned, if you like, in man's eyes. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Uh, it's really important not to say it can't happen because this hasn't happened. I think it's difficult as well if you say it is that one person yeah. because it leaves you open to be led astray by lots of other people in your generation or subsequent yeah. generations as well. Yeah. I think the idea is be alert. Yeah. Satan's at work. Satan's going to do all that he can to deceive, to distract, to help people not to put their trust in God. Yeah. He hates it. He wants yeah. to deceive as many as possible. So if you're limiting it to one person and that is the beast or whoever, however you want to term it, I think there's a danger that you're complacent and that, oh, yeah. it's okay, that's the person, we don't have to worry anymore. Yeah. We have to worry all the time. Yeah, and it's very dangerous. It's a very now view. Yes. The danger is that we look back over the last 2,000 years and say, well, they needn't have worried because it was clear if they'd read the scriptures properly that Jesus couldn't possibly have returned. So they could... Yes. And that 
is Who not are we what, to say that? That is not mm. what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching you have to be mm. ready tonight. Yes. Yeah, who are we to say, oh, it's not time for Jesus? Mm. I mean, Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return. God does. God's going mm. to send him. So that's really quite interesting. And that's Well, that's another theological debate as yes. to whether actually Jesus had intended to come earlier, but through the f mistakes or problems of the church he's had to delay that's yep. another story for another day exciting i, I recognize we've gone slightly over time <laughs> is there anything else that you want to sum up or say or that we haven't covered because we could go on for hours going through all these things i would just take the general principle understand that it's metaphorical and don't take bits some bits literal and some bits not. Okay, here's your final question. Okay. Joy Taylor, love you, Joy. Do you think animals will go to heaven? This is her question she asks you all the time. No idea. Ah, good answer. What I do know is that we won't be disappointed in heaven and we won't be sad. Yes. And that we won't think it's not good enough. Yes. I imagine... God being with us. So like say I'm sitting here and God is there. That will blow my mind. That alone, just knowing that God isn't out there and I can't see him, but knowing that he is there, being able to dwell with him and talk to him. And, and, and I just think, what more do I want? Mm. How absolutely awesome. And a world where there is no sin, a world where there is no pain, there is no illness, there's no frailty, where we're just... I mean, if Hattie and Winnie don't make it... I think there'll be animals. It's whether oh, you whether there will be my animals. So she's saying Shrade won't make it? I've no idea. Well, Shrade's going strong, you know. Oh, she might be eternal. <laughs> I've no idea. Eternal. I've no idea. I just know... <laughs> I just know I, I won't mind. No. Whatever it is, I'll be filled with joy. Got another message in. Okay, <laughs> we're going on till midnight. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Okay, bear with me. Thank you all for messaging. It's brilliant. Nikki Cleave. Good evening, Nikki. Lovely to hear from you. She says, "Thank you for helping me to start understanding Revelation." Now I can't remember the name for it, but when John died, the priest mentioned that before getting to heaven, he would be sent to wait somewhere. Mm. I don't hold that. I don't hold that view. Is that this what's being discussed? Yes, so it is. So the the from a uh, some perspectives of the Catholic perspective is that a person consciously is waiting, and that's called purgatory or whatever. The our understanding is that it could be sleep or it could be the time machine, which, whichever. The point really is that what's important is that is that whoever's died is not conscious of waiting. They're not drumming their fingers, they're not, in, in they're not our anxious, view, yeah. anxious or concerned. So I often say to people, I think the time machine metaphor is easier to understand, even though it's not the biblical one. The biblical one is sleep, like a general anaesthetic. You sleep, you're awake, you can't remember anything. I always think of that. Yeah, and that's, perf yeah. And that's, that's the biblical metaphor. Some people prefer the time machine one. <laughs> the doctor who, depends on whether we're into sci-fi or not. The point is, we die. The next thing we yeah, know instant. is yeah. is that moment. So, so, I, so, so what I would say, Nikki, is people use the language of waiting, but it's not a conscious waiting. It's not somebody is having a difficult experience. John is at peace. The next Absolutely. thing John will know is being joined by Nikki. Yeah before Jesus, celebrating eternal life. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. And she's no need to worry. Yeah. He's not in any place to be fearful of or to be thinking, oh, no, John's there. The next thing John knows is Jesus. Uh, another way, we, we put them in the hands of Jesus. Yes. That's a great way of thinking of it. Absolutely. Brilliant.